Welcome to Pragmatic Live, a podcast created to help you succeed, especially if you create or market or price innovative products. I'm Mark Stiving, a pragmatic marketing instructor, and I wrote a book on pricing. Do you know who else wrote a book on pricing? Today's guest, Joanne Smith. Her book is titled The Pricing and Profit Playbook. Now, a little bit about Joanne. She spent almost her entire career at a single company, DuPont. She was in many different roles there, her last one being marketing strategy director. And yet of all the roles she held, she enjoyed pricing the most, which is why she started her own firm in 2013 called Price to Profits Consulting. In my brief conversations with her, she shared a passion for helping companies build price and profit culture. So that's what we're going to talk about today. Welcome, Joanne. Well, thank you, Mark. I'm delighted to be here. It's going to be fun. How did you spend an entire career with a single company? Nobody does that anymore. Well, this was DuPont and and folks, you know, are very loyal to that company. I spent time in manufacturing operations. I had uh, assignments where I was product managers. I was business uh, management. I led Six Sigma for every function in the corporation before starting up marketing pricing and customer loyalty for the company. So I had a lot of diversity and a lot of excitement over those years. Nice. And what I love about that is you've gotten to experience so many different areas of business. And yet after you left, you said pricing is the place I love. And, and that's where I love too. But, but tell me why. Well, first, let me tell you, within DuPont, when I led them for a little over six years, most years, we brought in about a billion dollars of profit uplift from our pricing efforts. Well, that's pretty energizing. And I have worked in all fields, and there is no other field that I have been able to deliver that kind of enormous success and in such a short time. That's phenomenal. A billion dollars is is an incredible amount of money. If you don't mind me asking, what was revenues, uh, what was uh, DuPont's revenue at the time? So what percent uptake was that? We were just a little over 27 billion when I started. And then we were over 35 billion at the time that um, I shifted into other roles. Okay, so at a billion off 27, we're looking at 4% profit uptake per year. Yeah, that's uh, fairly, fairly accurate. Some nice. more, some less, but absolutely some very large earnings improvements year after year after year. And what did pricing look like at DuPont? So did you run a pricing department that went around and coached other organizations or how did that work? Yes. In fact, uh, I was uh, in a corporate group and we supported the 50-some businesses in DuPont in all regions of the world. So we had a very diverse uh, playing field and we were really a coaching arm. They did not need to use us, but if they elected to use use us, we helped them with price. And we certainly led the cultural change across the company and brought in the kinds of training or the kinds of process and systems needed to really up the game. I think that's fascinating. I often talk about the fact that pricing people rarely put prices on things. And I find that really entertaining because we don't know the value of the product the way people inside the business lines know the value of their product. I mean, so our job has to be coaching and teaching and consulting 
and maybe data collection and data analytics for them. But but it's all the things around it, but not setting prices. Did you did you find that true at Dupont? Well, yes and no. When we went into businesses, and I had a group uh, working for me, Mark. We also help them at times set new prices. It might be for new products or it might be across a very complex product line. And for sure, we did an awful lot of help in helping them to do price increases uh, when it was appropriate. Probably my favorite thing in the world, price increases. (laughs) (laughs) Well, except for when I'm shopping. Oh, yes. Yes. Okay, and so did you start the pricing department at DuPont? I did. Nice. I was living in Europe doing some work for uh, in business and marketing strategy at the time, and uh, the corp- company decided to bring in and start up marketing with pricing being its first primary focus, and they asked me to come back from Europe and help lead that pricing. And so that means that you actually had to help create the culture around price at DuPont. Absolutely. Then that is a lot of the basis of the book that I wrote and a lot of the basis for why I'm passionate really about building a culture of price and a price and profit culture, if you will. Okay. So what does that mean to you? When you say the words price and profit culture, what are we talking about? All right. So let me just kind of back up here a little bit and just say, when I talk within a company, I generally don't talk about building a pricing culture because I don't think that's a very compelling kind of vision, if you will, for your sales organization, for your business leaders. I mean, let's face it, business leaders and sales need to juggle a lot of balls. They're not just interested in price, they have to get volume up, they have to get customer loyalty up, take out costs. So they're juggling quite a lot. And so when I think about really the right vision, I think of it as, either a profit-driven culture or a value-driven culture. And Mark, in my world, value culture and a profit culture are two sides of the same coin. I couldn't agree more. Absolutely. Yeah, you really, you're you're not going to get profit if you're not creating and delivering uh, value. So I essentially, depending on what company I'm working with, whatever kind of really resonates within a company they might call this a value-driven culture or a profit-driven culture. Let me give you the kind of definition, which is what your, your original question was. I say it's a culture that has a passion for creating value and a passion for getting fairly paid for that value. Then differentially reinvesting for further value creation to build customer loyalty and growth. At the same time, de-investing in areas where we're not able to drive customer loyalty or get fairly paid. So what you probably heard in that is one, you have to create the value, but two, most companies, even when they innovate, they fail to get their fair fair price. Either they're not skilled or they're almost embarrassed. They're helping the customer. They, They don't think they should price too high. Well, the fact is, if we create that innovation, we should we should fairly price. And then we all know you have to segment your market because not every customer or market group is willing to pay or even value all the same things you might innovate around. So that becomes a critical part to make sure that we're taking our limited resources 
and pushing them and moving them to innovate in the areas where we will get rewarded with price and growth. Moving them or shifting them away from those areas of uh, markets and price price buyer kind of uh, customers that are just not willing to pay for that value. Yeah, I think that's that's brilliant. So there were really two answers there. Uh, one answer was, are we charging for the value we deliver? And in high-tech worlds today, I think they're getting better and better at that. Uh, one of the great things about selling software is you don't have a hard cost. You have to develop it, but once you've created it, you don't have this hard cost. And so it's almost impossible to do cost-based pricing, which means they think a lot about how do people get value? How do we charge for this? And so I think in the world of software, they're doing better and better at charging for the value they create. And I love that, right? I think that's awesome. But I think where they fail all the time is in this concept of price segmentation. Uh, they create a single application and say, hey, this is for the world. Everybody should buy it. And now we're not segmenting based on who gets the most value. The other thing I loved about what you said, by the way, was let's de-invest in places where we're not getting that value. Let's actually make choices not to serve customers or not to serve market segments. I think that's brilliant. Uh, it's just critical in today's world. We just do not have anybody, that the number of resources we need to do that. And let's face it, we have to have profits. Okay? That's what we're in business for. And it's those profits that really help fund the next uh, innovation. Hey, Mark, I will just add, you know, additionally, when we think about price, you've said high tech is getting better and better at really value pricing, if you will. I said software, but okay. Uh, okay, software, excuse me, <laughs> software, that'd be correct. But there's also a component that I find in many companies that I work with that maybe they understand they have more value and they begin to value price, but what they don't understand very well is how their own behaviors might impact market pricing and what other competitors do. And so when it goes to execution, I find a lot of negotiation and leakage of price that actually creates more aggressive customers and more aggressive competitors so that they're actually inadvertently lowering the market price where they could be changing their behaviors in such a way that they elevate or help to uplift the market price for all similar software companies, if you will. Oh, I, I agree. I think companies often do things that cause their own prices to go down or the industry prices to go down, and they don't even realize it. And, and so I think that's awesome. How, how do you build a culture then? So you're going to go into a company and say, let me help you with this value culture. I love that word. Um, how, do you, how do you do that? Well, to start with, let me just say there's no silver bullet. <laughs> it's not one thing. It's a collection of things. And if I think about it at the highest level, there's pretty much four buckets of areas that I work in. So uh, one, and probably one of the most important, is getting leadership to have the passion and the urgency for this value or profit culture. The second area is the things that you do relative to your people and the skills uh, that are needed for both price setting and for the actual price execution. The third goes to your incentives, and that may well be, and, and most often, the sales incentives. 
but it can extend into business incentives and whether they're driving the right kinds of profits or are they driving volume. And then the last area is in complex businesses, we also need some formal processes and systems to really manage our price well. So I'm willing, Mark, to delve into any of those four uh, areas that might interest you. I want to talk about all of them, can we? <laughs> we can try. <laughs> so, so can we start with leadership for a second? And, and you said, do they have passion for the topic or for the incentive? For the, um, what's the word I'm looking for? Urgency for, for a profit culture or a value go. culture. That works. Thank you very much. <laughs> <laughs> so do they have this passion? How... How hard is that? It seems to me that you wouldn't get hired unless they have this passion already. Possibly, but quite often uh, I'm usually brought in where somebody has heard that maybe uh, pricing can do some good things or they know they're not pricing well, but they don't fully understand kind of the breadth of the cultural change to get at the really big numbers. They may think, do a quick project, you know, get me five million here and I can check that box. They don't realize that it may be not five million, but 10 million or 20 million, and that might be year after year. So part of with this leadership is really getting them to understand the powerful business case for doing price. And just as an example, Mark, I might say, um, if you're a billion dollar company, in my experience, you might have 3 to 10% profit uplift possible over a few-year period beyond what you typically do. And if you think about it, a 1% improvement in profit of a billion-dollar company, that's $10 million in earnings, right? So that's a huge, huge amount of money for just a 1% shift. And I'm saying to most companies, you can expect more like a 3 to 10% shift. Furthermore, Mark, studies in the B2B world show that the large majority of companies, in the U.S. it's 70% and, and 90% in Europe, if you will, are in low price maturity, low price capability stages. So we have a big stake out there. We have most companies not doing it very well, and we need... And then as you think about the many companies like DuPont with a billion dollars a year who have proven that it's not just there in theory, in practice you can get these dollars, that helps to build the vision and the business case for our leaders. I often follow it up by actually coming into companies and in a, a couple of days I do a, an in-depth pricing maturity forum on 36 different points so that they can see just how far they are or they have to come, right? How weak their pricing likely is. And they are usually surprised. Most companies think they are far better at pricing than they really are. So that's kind of how I start getting think, the leadership on board. I think that's crucial. Uh, why is it that companies don't invest in price already? I mean, why don't they see the value in that before you walk in the door? I, don't, I guess I, I, mean, I do understand it, but I want to hear your thoughts. Well, I think that people from their gut tend to think that price and volume are equal in being 
profit levers for their companies, mm. right? A 1% in volumes, the same as a 1% in price. And that is really not true. In fact, the average Fortune 1000 company, there is a four to one ratio. In other words, pricing is four times as powerful at getting an earnings than um, volume. And that's just not understood. And further, Mark, most companies think that the market sets the price. Oh, man, that is, that is such a limiting thought. I have just worked with hundreds of hundreds of, of companies who felt that way and proven and shown them how their own behaviors can change and influence that market price to some very sweet dollars. So I think that's one of the issues here. They just don't understand the business case. Uh, and how much is really practical. Yeah, and they don't understand the power. I think companies who say to themselves, the market sets the price, they've essentially said that we're a commodity product. What that probably means is they have ridiculously low margins. And so really tiny improvements in, pro in pricing have incredible impact on their profitability. Right. And by the way, <laughs> commodity products should be the best at working the market price. Because for that very reason, price is so important and they can truly be very successful moving it up. And for sure, I can guarantee you if they're not working it, they are pushing it down. But, you know, Mark, let me just say, you know, once you get leaders to kind of understand it's important, part of the culture is getting the leaders to change their behaviors in a way that really support and proactively lead the right kind of culture. So that's probably maybe the, the heart of a lot of pricing is in getting leaders to change behaviors. And so what does that mean? Can you give me a couple of behaviors leaders should be doing? Sure, yeah. Give me a second here, I'm gonna just back up and kind of give you my mental model on, on a little bit on pricing that'll set the stage. Mm -hmm. So I would contend that pricing and price increases take tremendous courage. It's a scary thing to push your price as high as, as you should because you're gonna risk volume. So mentally I view it as you're walking up to a cliff edge and you wanna get as close to that cliff edge as possible without falling over the cliff. And the analogy is falling over the cliff would indicate you increased your price too high and you lost the volume. Okay, so if that's in our minds, now think about this. In the B2B world, we're not walking up to a cliff edge that has a nice big sign saying cliff edge. No, we are blindfolded. And we're trying to walk up to this cliff edge blindfolded. So of course, that's a scary thing. We're gonna we're going to make sure we are far from that cliff edge and we don't risk the volume. So I would say for companies to really get good at price, they absolutely have to be willing to lose a little volume. Not a lot of volume, but they have to be willing to lose some volume. And that's where leadership's uh, behavior comes in play. Because if leaders are unwilling to risk volume. If it's a punitive world, if you risk volume, your salespeople are not going to walk up to that edge. They're not going to push that envelope. They're going to take the easier win of going for volume. And I will tell you, in the hundreds of price increases that I've guided businesses through, 
when the leaders, I'm talking top business leaders, top sales leaders, have stood up visibly, explicitly said, this is our fair price or our fair price increase, and we are going to put that through. If we have to, we are going to walk away from customers who are unwilling to pay our fair price. Right? So they put it forward uh, in a genuine way to kind of give coverage to the salesperson to do what is right and drive earnings. So that's kind of one of the big things I see. I think that's absolutely spot on. And one of the the differences between the cliff analogy that you used in most B2B businesses is we're not about to fall off a cliff. We're going to fall off a little step, right? We lose little pieces of business, but we don't have to lose the entire company. And so it's, it's okay to lose small business. It's okay to take the small steps down in volume, but, uh, but we got to move forward in the pricing side. Excellent point. And you just reminded me of something else I should say. Of those hundreds of businesses that I worked with, I can only come up with two examples, one in DuPont, one outside DuPont, that we actually lost any piece of volume that was big enough to be noticed, right? And each case, it was a very large customer, and the customer was crystal clear that they would walk away if we did not lower price. And in both cases, the business held firm and said, geez, we would love you to come back to us when you're ready to pay our fair price. And in both cases, roughly three months out, both customers were back. So just because you're willing to risk price, that really just gives the confidence to your salespeople. And if you do the right things, if you develop the right skill set, the actual odds of losing volume are extremely low. I'd love that whole topic. We're only gonna have time to dive into one more, I think. But let's, let's talk about price execution and the sales team since we just brought that up. And I often say salespeople have to be confident they can win at the price that we think they should win at. Um, what, I assume that you agree with that, but, but how do you do that? Oh, I absolutely think confidence and conviction to go after your fair price is just underpins all of the um, skills. So for me, and I have worked with you know, Salesforce is all over the place. Their skills are inherently not strong at price execution. <laughs> okay. And I see it time and time again. And I don't care how many sales negotiation courses they go to. Those courses are not teaching price negotiation. So, and by the way, I'm talking here about sales, but there is a whole weak area of price setting that is often in the hands of product managers or pricing people, you know, that is also not strong. We need good price setting and good price execution. But if I go back to the execution here, you know, there's kind of three things that they really have to have the skill to do well. They have to understand their actual value to the customer so that they can modify the price and the offering consistent with what that customer needs and do it in a way they can kind of quantify that value. They can prove to the customer why it's fair, but also they need those skills to be able to positively impact the, the marketplace and move price up. Uh, so price increase skills and 
they also must have the skills to deal with times where they have to discount. Mark, we're in a B2B world. So many businesses negotiate almost every deal. So, right, we set the best and appropriate price point, but depending on the company size and, and where they get value, we're going to negotiate some. And we're doing it with perhaps aggressive customers, or excuse me, competitors that are also bidding on that same business. So the salespeople really need to understand how to manage aggressive competitors. They need to understand different uh, price excuse me, buyer types out there and the techniques they use. And they have to understand price volume trade-offs. All these skills need to come together. And then they have the confidence to really make the right decisions, right? And that's presuming leadership is with them and on board and saying, yeah, we're all about optimizing profit. That skill set with that leadership kind of leading out there what it really takes for success. So for me, formal training is, is, um, can do huge things for uh, companies shifting their execution behavior or their price setting behavior. Uh, I want to go in front another hour, can we? <laughs> <laughs> I don't know if we can. <laughs> um, I, Maybe we, we have we, a part two. Yeah, we will. But, but one more quick question for you, just because I'm always fascinated by the answer to this. Uh, you mentioned sales incentives were really important and try to keep as quickly as possible. Do you think that we should give salespeople cost information so that we can incentivize them based on margins? I don't know if they need cost information, but I do think that many of them need a little bit of understanding of variable contribution margin at its highest level because anytime you do a price volume trade-off decision, If you don't have some concept of the rough uh, contribution margin, you're going to make a bad decision. As an example, a commodity uh, business that has a low contribution margin might have, price might be uh, five to ten times as strong as the volume lever, where a very, very specialty-oriented business it might be that the pricing lever is only one and a half times volume. So they need to understand this because they're often doing a give and take. Should I go for more volume or should I go for price? And you can't do that if if you don't have a clue about the contribution margin. So otherwise you have pricing people that are going to tell them every step of the way how to make those decisions. But I kind of think salespeople should be thinking, you know, on their own and have some of this in their in their bailiwick for their daily kind of conversations. So that answer surprised me a lot. <laughs> <laughs> and I had to process in my mind, why did that surprise me? And I think the answer is in most companies I deal with, a salesperson deals with a pretty similar contribution margin regardless of the product they're selling. And it may be that in businesses that you've dealt with, We've got commodity type products where there's tiny margins. We've got products where uh, we're the sole supplier, where we've got really nice margins. And so you do have to make those trade-offs of volume discount versus price on different products, different ways. And so that makes a ton of sense in that type of business. Yeah. When you have hundreds, if not thousands of products, they can be margined all over the place. But even if you look at customer by customer within one single 
product. If you're negotiating prices all over the place, and likely the bigger guys have better prices than the little guys, mm -hmm. uh, you're going to have some of those big guys who have a lot of pricing power, right, have negotiated very low prices and therefore low margin. And so as you think about, do I keep them? Do I keep this price lower because they're going to you know, expand me into their next three businesses? Or do I go for price and maybe, you know, only get uh, to do one of those next three businesses? Then you kind of have to understand that that margin. Right. Excellent. Johan, thank you so much for your time today. Um, if anyone wants to contact you, how can they do that? They can go right to uh, my webpage if they like, and that's www.price2profits.com. Or they can directly uh, go into LinkedIn Connect or write to my website with this Joanne Smith at price, the number two, profits.com. Excellent. And to our listeners, I hope you enjoyed that half as much as I did. Uh, we'd love to hear from you. We welcome your questions, suggestions, and especially any compliments you might have for Joanne. Uh, please send your comments to experts at pragmaticmarketing.com. And don't forget to join us for the next episode of Pragmatic Live.